From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Christian tradition has been largely influenced by Protestantism, which has been influenced by Catholicism based out of Rome, and has really taken on an empire theology that there's a few winners and there's a lot of losers. And I wanted to make sure that people understood this hidden influencer in their life isn't the only kind of Christianity there is. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon Delay. She's a teacher, spiritual director, and host of Spark My Muse, a podcast with guests including Krista Tippett, James Martin, Parker J. Palmer, Mark Nepo, Lisa Friedman Barrett, Seth Godin, and many others. Originally from Puerto Rico, Delay has an MA in spiritual formation, and she's taught in many spiritual settings. She offers spiritual companioning and retreats to many of her clients. Her work has appeared in several anthologies and in dozens of places in print and online. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Lisa Colondale, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much, David. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I'm a big fan of your work. I've been following you for a long time. I've been listening to Spark My Muse, your podcast. I want to get into all of that. But as a way of getting into that and introducing you to my listeners, I wonder if we could start with a very basic question. You have described yourself in various ways as a spiritual companion. And I think listeners would be helped here to understand what you mean by that phrase. That's a really good question because... Even just the word spiritual is bandied about so much now that it's hard to know what people mean and in what context. Just to back up for a little bit of background is I studied at a seminary for spiritual formation, and that was really to help me become a better writer. But what I noticed is that transformation comes so much more richly in relationship. And so studying spiritual formation and learning how to be a good listener, learning how to ask good questions is how I have found a kind of ministry. It's not one that I tend to get paid for or paid much for, but that's not the important part. It's just journeying with somebody else. Spiritual companioning is journeying with somebody else. And not in a problem-based way, as you might do with therapy or counseling, but in just walking life together and seeing God in all things, being an encouragement, and People are finding this more and more helpful as we have gone to a screen-mediated life. And I think that if everybody had a spiritual companion or a spiritual friend, that would be like having the best friends you could have that was sort of trained to make space to listen and to see where God is at work. Let me see if I'm following what you're saying here. So 
if we were thinking about you as a kind of therapist, then if someone, say, lost their job, you would come alongside them and you would say, and how did that make you feel? Where did you feel blocked in that? But a spiritual companion, if I'm hearing you correctly, would come alongside and not necessarily try and fix that problem, but instead would be directing the person to ask, and where did you see God in that? Where did you see the spirit moving in that? Now, when I make that distinction, am I on to what you're saying or have I, have I missed something? That's close, but I think more than anything, a spiritual companion makes space for quiet and for silence and for the person to, in a way, find their own wisdom. And so you might be asking a question like, where did you see God's presence in that? But it might not even get that far. You might just listen for a while and maybe even just repeat back what you say and just be a non-anxious presence for that person. And it doesn't have to be problem-based. So any kind of, say it was a job loss, it could be a very painful thing and you could listen and, and hold pain and hold space for them. And you could also work on certain spiritual practices that might help a person to become more centered and more reflective. And the idea really is that even though sometimes it's called spiritual direction, you're really just coming alongside somebody. You're not directing them. You're not telling them to do anything or trying to fix wounds or anything like that. But really, you're just creating a space that's just for that person. So what happens with often in our lives is that we don't want to speak about everything to our family members or to our closest friends or something like that. That might be where people go to therapy sometimes. But a spiritual friend is somebody who has the time and the space and the training to not get sucked into your dramas and get triggered or isn't really part of your life in a way where knowing them would make a big difference. You can be completely open and honest with them in things that are considered spiritual, but in any kind of juncture in life too. And this really comes more out of the Eastern Christian tradition where you have a spiritual guide for your whole life, somebody who's a wise elder, and they don't just talk to you when things are bad. There's a kind of an ongoing apprenticeship or companioning that happens. One of the phrases that you used just now, I, I want to circle back to, you You talked about being a non-anxious presence. And I want to say, first of all, how much I love that phrase, but I also want to know what you mean by that. Because I think for most of us, particularly during this past year of COVID, anxiety has been really one of our companions. So what does it mean to be a non-anxious presence with someone? I love how you have targeted that word. And that is the thing that I find that I am often not. I'm not a person who is an anxious presence. When spiritual directors or spiritual friends are in the Irish tradition, it's called anakaram, which means soul friend. One of the things you do is handle your own work and your own issues first so that when you're with someone else, you're completely available to them. You can give your whole attention to them and provide complete presence without them thinking they have to make you happy or looking for acceptance or anything like that. So as a person who is, and I'm not saying that I can do this, <laughs> just when a person is a non-anxious presence in a spiritual companionship or in any kind of really good friendship, they are a safe spot. They're a safe place to land. They're not jarred by anything that's been said. They are there for the long haul. And so there's this really different grounded aspect to spiritual companionship in a more formal way. Of course, we can have friends that are spiritual 
and help us grow more spiritually. But a spiritual companion that you pay that might be coming out of the Ignatian tradition trained for these sorts of things is really there to be completely available to you so that there's enough quiet for the answers to arise. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon DeLay. She's a teacher, a spiritual director, and she's a host of the Spark My Muse podcast. I highly recommend that listeners check out that podcast. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Well, you've also said something else in our first moments of this conversation that really grabbed my attention. And you've repeated it in various ways in the answers that you've given me. And it's this practice of listening and being available to listen. And it strikes me that that is something that particularly in our culture here today in the 21st century, it's not just a lost art. It's almost a buried mystery, the ability to actually sit and listen to another person and really hear what they're saying. There's a John Mulaney bit from one of his comedy specials where he talks about being in a conversation with somebody and the person is relating a traumatic event and Mulaney is saying that the whole kind of thing in his mind is just, ooh, he's going to get done talking in just a minute and then I'm going to get to talk because he's just talking too much and then I'm going to get to say what I'm going to say. And I think that a lot of people approach conversation like that. They don't actually listen. So I'd love to hear more about how you think about listening as a practice and how you work to deepen that as a practice. That's a beautiful question. This is a lifelong pursuit that I have given myself over to, and not because I'm particularly any good at it. (laughs) I'm more of an extrovert, more of a talker. And one of the things I learned as I started reading some of the Catholic writers like Merton and Keating and Henry Nouwen were how off balance my own spiritual life was that it didn't have a quiet part. It didn't have a listening element to it. My prayers were just talking and no no listening. And what happens sometimes in those circumstances is that we are spiritually malformed that way. We haven't given ourselves enough time of quiet for the real most authentic things about ourselves to emerge, including the wounds. And so we're not of course, able to then offer that to somebody else. So when you're in training to be a a good listener, some people call it the ministry of holy listening. It it really is about dealing with some of the things that come up for you first when you're quieted down. Because a lot of times when we quiet down, and I, I mentioned this too in the book, is sometimes that's when you hear all the bumps in the night. In the middle of the night when it's super quiet, that's when you hear the creepy sounds and you wonder... What is going on that I can't quite see? What a beautiful way to say that. So as you quiet things down, the first thing that comes to you is terror, the bumps in the night that you can't quite see. And so what I'm hearing you saying is that listening, even though it's focused on another person, it takes a lot of discipline of being aware of yourself in addition to being aware of the other person. Am I thinking of that the right way or have I missed something in that? You're spot on. I think that's really the discipline of being a good listener, and especially in a ministry sense where you're trying to make space for people to be heard and to hear themselves, is that none of your own junk can get in the way. You can't be speaking with somebody as a non-anxious presence and they say something painful and you say, hey, that reminds me of a time when I was at this wedding. It just ruins the entire space at that point. It becomes not about you and you become just really a vehicle for 
a more spacious way of understanding the world, but also understanding God and God's immediate felt presence at times as well. It strikes me, though, that there are ways that you can be about this discipline of listening and monitoring yourself that would be more productive and other ways that would be less productive. To give you an example, if I'm trying to listen to you and I feel those kind of bumps in the night intruding into my thoughts and I immediately focus all my attention there and get really focused on getting rid of all my bumps in the night, I'm actually not being a non-anxious presence. I'm making myself more anxious in trying to listen to another person. So mm-hmm. so there's different ways to be quiet. Is that a fair way to, to think? about that? Oh, yeah. That's a great way to say it. There are many different ways to be quiet. And sometimes the quieting, as I I mentioned in the book, out of the Black American church tradition, silence was often uh, done in as a way to punish and oppress the Black population in the United States. So when they consider coming into silence, as Howard Thurman, Dr. Howard Thurman, the mystic, who was the architect for the civil rights movement, in the 1960s, he called it centering down. And that doesn't mean that there's quietness around you necessarily, but it is a a centering down into your belovedness, into an understanding of God's true love and grace for you. And it, it is really just quieting everything down internally, which can, for some people, be extremely difficult if you've been traumatized. If you're not used to it, it's like building a muscle. It's it's like the same sort of thing as people might experience if they've practiced yoga or if they've tried to run a marathon and you have to get that practice in. So it's a daily, hourly, even moment by moment. Something like centering down is where you come into your own sense of being. And it's not affected by necessarily the circumstances or even the thoughts that are going through your mind, because this way of thinking is that thoughts are not you. They're something that moves through like a weather system. And you can call yourself an anxious person, but the better way to say it is, I'm a person experiencing anxious thoughts. So from a spiritual formation standpoint, that is the much more Uh, movement to wholeness to think about our thoughts in those ways and think about centering down as something we do uh, as our most authentic selves. No, as you're saying that, one of the things that came to my mind was the African-American spiritual hymn, There's a Sweet Spirit in My Soul. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to be quiet around you, but it means that even in the midst of the quiet, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's a calm space that you have achieved or that you have arrived at where you are able to be centered and whole, and these are your words that I'm trying to bring in to understand, but you're centered and whole in the midst of what might be even a chaotic situation inside and outside of yourself, but you also have this space that is grounded. Yeah. And also beyond that, there is room in that space for anything you're feeling. So if you're feeling lament, if you're feeling grief, anger, rage, the Black community as well as the rest of us in this country, have experienced a lot of visual media pictures and images and news of horrendous murders and oppression. So does that mean that the people in the Black community can be, okay, well, that's okay, because I'm just going to center down? Well, not. it's not a place of necessarily of always of peace and tranquility as much as it is getting to be acquainted with reality as it is and still knowing that things are going to be okay. We'll get into all of this as our conversation continues, but for now, let me remind listeners that you're listening to Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon-Delay. She is a teacher, spiritual director, and host of the wonderful podcast, Spark My Muse. 
Today we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Lisa Colon DeLay. She's a teacher, spiritual director, and she's host of the wonderful podcast, Spark My Muse. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Well, now I want to turn to the book itself and ask you a kind of wide-ranging question. The ultimate question I'm going to ask you is why a book, but let me kind of build to get there. Because you've been companioning with people on a spiritual level, as we've talked about for a number of years. You trained to do this kind of spiritual companion work in graduate studies, but you've also been involved in creating media through your podcast, Spark My Muse, where you've been having wonderful conversations with spiritual companions and practitioners and those who have thought a lot about these kinds of questions. You've shared that with a wider audience audience, what was it that made you then say, and now this needs to become a book? I need to distill this down into a different format, a different medium. What does a book accomplish for you? What does the wild land within accomplish for you? That one-on-one companioning, spiritual direction in groups, and leading a podcast like Spark My Muse didn't do. Mm. Well, first I'll say that the book serves a little bit as a companion to readers, to seekers, to people who want a journey within the interior parts of their inner world that are often in shadow. So the book serves as a kind of spiritual companion, but I also recommend that people have a spiritual companion or friendship or at least a small group as they read it, because it's not a self-help book. It is where transformation happens within community. And so I guess to begin, I would say that I always wanted to write. And what led me to podcasting was Krista Tippett, who is my forever girl crush and on being. I thought that her way of creating space and hospitality and her interviewing style was so beautiful. And I was listening to her podcast even before it became the On Being podcast. And I thought to myself one day, I love reading. Wouldn't it be neat to just speak with some of these authors and just have a conversation? And let me try it out. If I do something like that, I want it to be sort of like the on being feel where it's deep diving conversations that are transformative and can create insights. And so I just decided I'll just ask around. I'll just ask a few authors and everybody kept saying yes. (laughs) So that surprised me. And all of a sudden I had a podcast I had been thinking maybe I would do some lessons or something like that with a podcast, but then enough authors came on that it made it have its own style. And really what I'm trying to do is just focus on spiritual things, which is to say our aliveness. And 
coming in contact with our aliveness in richer and more authentic ways as we begin to heal and uh, from whatever it is that holds us back, but also as we begin to heal between ourselves too in relationships and coming alongside each other. You mentioned a moment ago creating a safe space in this podcast and creating a certain kind of conversation. I'm aware that when I sit down with someone and I have a deep and rich conversation, that is a sacred moment. I'm also aware that as soon as I try and do that with someone and I put a microphone between us, that changes the moment. And then when we think about the fact that I'm not just doing this with someone who is a dear friend who trusts me, but maybe someone who I've just met or who has done 15 of these conversations already, that also changes the moment. So I want to ask you about intentionality. How do you go about creating the kind of safe space that you're talking about when you have these technological things in the way, like a Zoom screen or a microphone that automatically makes it feel a little alien to the person, but then also it's a person with whom you may have almost no prior relationship at all. What are some of your steps for helping to create the space where the person feels at ease and where the person feels like they can begin to share these kinds of things with you in order to achieve the kind of conversation that you're looking for on your podcast, Spark My Muse? Well, I usually just have people on that I really want to have on, not that are popular or that have asked me to come on, but there is something within me that wants to know more. And it really comes out of a place of love. I don't have people on that I'm going to have huge disagreements with, even though, of course, I'm not going to see eye to eye with almost any one of my guests 100%. But why I have them on is because I love what they're doing. So that already sets the groundwork for uh, a conversation that is that is one of goodwill. And also just, I'm hoping that because I'm a person who really enjoys them, I just want more people to know about them and to know about the work and have a conversation. So part of that is this grounding of, I think, a place of, of generativeness, of love, of openness and, and space. And what happens, I think, is people realize when they're speaking to me, I'm really a fan. I'm really a fan of them. And I'm not just having them on because someone sent me a book and thought it would get me more clicks to have this person on. What I really like about that is I'm hearing ringing out that your ethic of interviewing is grounded in love for the person across the microphone from you and enjoyment of them and a desire to go deeper into that enjoyment with them. Now, when I say it that way back to you, am I hearing what you're meaning to say or would you say it in a different way? I think you're right on. Yeah, I think it's really important even in any of our interactions, uh, that we begin to see the image of God in the other person too. Like this is a, a deeper, this is a deeper than what you're asking probably, but whether it's somebody that I'm interacting with as a guest who I genuinely appreciate, and that's why I'm having them on, or it's somebody that I'm interacting with that I don't know as well. I think that when we start out with this person has the image of God within them, their image bearers, it's a little easier to relax into that and think, we're all on the same team here. This person doesn't have to be nervous. I don't have to be nervous. We're doing something together that produces life. It's not death dealing. A lot of our culture is very death dealing. And that's why um, doing something like a podcast every week or some of my other work fills me with hope. Even though it doesn't fill my bank account, it really is life-giving to everybody involved. I'm loving what you're saying. And 
particularly because it's now driving me to this next question. So you've talked to me about the ethic of how you think about an interview with a person, even a person that you've just met, and thinking about that of God in them and thinking about really having a moment of enjoyment with them and really coming from a place of love. But now we're talking about a book, your book, The Wild Land Within, where you are writing to an audience where you literally can't see them. The book is being sort of thrown into the wilderness of the marketplace. Anyone could pick it up. And I'm wondering how you think about the relationship with your readers and what you're hoping the connection with your readers will be in that space. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. It's so funny to have something in your head that you've thought about. And then later on, have someone on Twitter tweet back the thought that you had two years ago. (laughs) Um, So a book takes on its own life, whether I want it to or not. People will take it and interpret it or put it as a template on their own lives. And sometimes I don't have very many haters on or trolls or anything like that on Twitter. But someone said, no one's going to like your book who's colorblind. It was a way to say something like, what I know about my book is that it's not for everybody. But I hope that the way it's written in some manner of vulnerability, it's bringing in the stories of marginalized people who haven't had the same sorts of privileges sometimes. I'm hoping that those places of empathy within people are activated and and realized. I think that's really the only way I'm really keeping a kind of connection with my reader. And I also invite people in the book, go ahead and reach out. I love uh, these connections and having conversations around these topics because it's not going to serve me or anyone else if there's facade involved. What I'm speaking about is so personal and so core level. I didn't write a business book about a tactic or something like that. This is about the inner places within us, the places of fear, places of uh, heartache, dreams, ambitions, desires. And so it wouldn't serve me or anybody else if I wasn't coming at this pretty naked and vulnerable myself. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon Delay. She's a teacher, spiritual director, and the host of the wonderful podcast, Spark My Muse. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. A moment ago, you talked about the comment that someone gave to you that said, no one who is saying that they're colorblind is going to like your book. And I think that's a good way of beginning to talk about some of the content of The Wild Land Within. You are bringing a kind of smorgasbord of spiritual practices, like a real buffet of the entire Eastern and Western traditions is laid out before the reader. But even in that grand sweep, what I really appreciated about the book was that you would stop and say, and look, here's a person who's been hurt by this. And look, here's a person who's been hurt by this. Look, here are people who have been hurt by this. And look, here is how I have been hurt by this. And what I really appreciated about that as a person who myself has been abused at times by spiritual traditions or has been excluded by spiritual traditions, that really made me as a reader feel very included in this grand sweep of what you were presenting to us. I found through my own pain and suffering at points, the places where I belonged in the story. And that was very powerful for me. And I wonder what it's like trying to balance those two things where you're presenting so much of the good of the spiritual tradition, but also being very honest about those places where the spiritual tradition has been abusive or violent or horrible. Right. 
Right. Gosh, I'm not even sure how to begin to answer this question, but I'm so glad that you have told me that uh, about your experience about reading the book, because that's exactly what I was trying to do. I was trying to have an honest discussion or exploration of spirituality, which is something that people just are spiritual, that there isn't that's part of our organism, but also people are usually connected to a religious tradition. And in this country, in this hemisphere, perhaps, that Christian tradition has been largely influenced by Protestantism, which has been influenced by Catholicism based out of Rome, and has really taken on an empire theology that there's a few winners and there's a lot of losers. And I wanted to make sure that people understood this hidden influencer in their life isn't the only kind of Christianity there is historically, globally, culturally, ethnically. And once people get a sense of this broader sense of Christianity, they might get a sense that everybody's welcome. God doesn't look a particular way. And I would like to say that God isn't a Christian because I think that's that tends to be a little bit of what happens sometimes in Christianity, at least in some of my experiences, is that sense of, I should tell you who God really is so that you don't believe lies. And God basically looks and acts and thinks like me. That's often, I should say that's too often what we might run into in Christian spaces or because of this dominance, this empire theology that comes to us from this heritage. But of course, spiritual things go much deeper than religion or man-made institutions or man-made systems. And my hope is by, as you were talking about some of the different people who have been hurt or wounded or oppressed by some of the more damaging parts of religion and Christianity, I'm hoping that people can see how when it comes to God and people are made in the image of God as image bearers, and that is the starting point, not dogma or beliefs about who we think God is, but actually who we actually are in God. One of the things that struck me in light of kind of what you're saying about these tensions that are there, early on in your book, The Wild Land Within, you talk about one of the early desert fathers, a uh, kind of a saint who literally went out into the wilderness to sort of battle with the demons outside and inside. And I, I forget exactly who the particular person was, but one of the things that you said about him really stuck with me, that he never stopped being tempted and that he was always aware of the fact that he had not achieved some kind of spiritual perfection, but that it was a daily practice that he was involved in. And I wonder about that. So th I think that there's a a myth in our society that says that somehow we're really going to get this spiritual stuff and we're going to be saints and everyone's going to see the kind of glow coming from us. The feeling that I get from the wild land within is that it's not like a light switch that you turn on. It's like exercise, as you said. It's like something that you come at daily and you hope to get better at, but some days you're going to have good days and some days you're going to have bad days. I wonder kind of if you could help me think about that. Mm -hmm. Right. The person you're speaking of is Evagrius Ponticus, who was a desert hermit in the Egyptian desert. And what people did who were drawn into the desert at this time in around the, the 300s, 400s, they were trying to strip down for life to be as simple as possible. What happens, though, in the silence, as we've talked a little bit before, is that demons can come up. And this was the terminology they used. And I think it it really stood for, maybe we would say monsters or old wounds or something like that. And temptations do come up like that, according to Evagrius, who mentored and 
taught many students seeking uh, God in the desert and seeking wisdom from him. And he speaks about our temptations. He calls them afflicting thoughts. Later on, these get translated by Pope Gregory into the consequences, which he calls the seven deadly sins. But Evagrius talks about afflicting thoughts, not as sinful at all. Eight particular afflicting thoughts I wind up covering in the book. And what he says is that these thoughts are normal human things that happen. We don't have to be ashamed if we feel avarice or lust. We just know it's coming and we can do things to prepare ahead of time. Like you were saying, it's a training. And really it's based on the idea that I think we all understand is the company you keep or the water that you swim in. All of that changes who you are as a person and and who you can become. And so with certain spiritual practices, such as prayer mainly was the one in the desert, these things keep our relationship intimate with God, but they also take into consideration that these tempting or afflicting thoughts will happen and we don't have to fear them or run from them or hide from them or pretend they're not there, but we have to not spend much of our energy or attention on them and let them pass like clouds. I think this is a really interesting view that's not very Western at all. We tend to, in Western Christianity or religion, we tend to think about things in terms of crime and punishment. You sinned, now you have to repent and turn around, maybe do some penance. But Evagrius is coming from a completely, a wholly different paradigm that talks about us as being good, not as us being disgusting or depraved, but as us being good, but ill sometimes. And we suffer sometimes. And sometimes we make our suffering even greater because we focus on the wrong things. We focus on the temptation that's bothering us and we obsess about it instead of turning our energy and our devotion to God. One of the things that you've mentioned in passing at several points in our conversation, and that also gets mentioned at several points in in your book, The Wild Land Within, is a kind of Ignatian practice. And uh, this comes from Ignatius of Loyola, the Catholic saint, who's the founder of the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. But it strikes me that in what you just said with Evagrius, this kind of looking within yourself and being aware of those moments when you're likely to be tempted to have uh, vice or avarice or lust or whatever. That's very Ignatian in some ways. It's a self-reflection that doesn't, it's not used to beat yourself up and say, I'm so evil, I'm so evil. But instead, it's noticing about yourself. When this sort of thing happens, I have a tendency to do this, almost like when you're in the doctor's office and the doctor taps your knee and you're, you reflexively, your leg kicks. It's almost like paying attention to your reflexes. And I, I kind of wonder, how has the thought of the Jesuits and the, uh, the thought of Ignatius Loyola played into these spiritual reflections that you're talking about in the wild land within? That's a really good question. One of the things I see as as very compatible in how Evagrius thinks and how Ignatian thinks is he has a very embodied look at spiritual formation. So you might wind up doing spiritual practices that, that use imagination or that follow the life of Christ bodily so that all your senses are involved. Ignatian is very into the idea, I guess the core idea really, is that God is always at work. and when your paradigm for living isn't separated into different things. This is my secular life. This is my work life. This is my family life. But that is all one life. 
and God is at work in all of it. It changes how we might behave or think of ourselves or what we might give our attentions to. And so Ignatian is very into spiritual practices because that creates, it cultivates the garden of the mind or the inner world. And in doing so, you can harvest more of the fruit of the spirit, which is God's ministry in us. And with Evagrius, he also is into a self-knowledge in, in a sense of let us see reality for what it really is. Let us be aware that God is in this and let us ask God to show God's presence more fully to us. I love the way they pair so nicely together. And it has a lot to do with just reflecting on reality as it is. I think that as silly and as simple as that sounds, we are happier to do maneuvers and mechanisms where we deny who we are and what we think and and how things are going in order maybe to find relief instead of healing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon-Delay. She's a teacher, spiritual director, and host of the wonderful Spark My Muse podcast. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Lisa colon She's a teacher, spiritual director, and host of the Spark My Muse podcast. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Both in the book, The Wild Land Within, and as you've told us here in the conversation on your podcast, Spark My Muse, you've had a chance to talk to and think with some of the real luminaries of what we might call the current kind of spiritual landscape here in North America. And I'd like to ask you, who are some of your heroes and what have some of those conversations been like for you? Well, the top of the list is Parker J. Palmer, who I was so happy to speak with in an interview. I had been teaching grad school, teaching teachers how to teach to the whole child, kind of think of people as not just receptacles to receive information, but as spiritual creatures and people we connect with. I guess we were talking a lot about 
a hidden wholeness in this class. And I was able to get an interview with Parker Palmer and ask him some of the questions the teachers actually had. He was so gracious. And he comes out of the Quaker tradition, which is all about, if you're familiar with it at all, all of their meetings, their gatherings are done in silence. And then out of that silence, uh, people are perhaps provoked by the spirit or incited by the spirit to say something. And sometimes the entire meeting will be in complete silence. So he is really a familiar, he is a person really familiar with that quiet way of being and how God can be approached as a ground of being from which can arise love and the fruit of the Spirit. So he was a fantastic person to speak to. His long life, I I believe he's 92 or 93 years old, and he's written 10 books. And to just ask him questions was a thrill. Well, and it strikes me what an act of hospitality that was, where the questions that were generated by your students about a text maybe that you were reading about Parker Palmer or in conversations that were inspired by the thought of Parker Palmer, you were actually able to take to Parker Palmer, and then he generously answered the questions, and you were able to take that wisdom back to your class. That's a remarkable position to be in relationally. That's a gift, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah. It's wonderful. I think the thing I really have gotten from Parker Palmer is how he uses every opportunity to to be generative, in my opinion. Not that he hasn't had hard times. He's had clinical depression three times. He's really struggled. But I've noticed his kind of spirit is one that is so willing to help. And he endorsed my book. It was just a lovely thing to have kind of read his work for a long time, thought he was a wonderful person. I got to meet him and got to interview him. And then later he read my book and endorsed it. It was just a beautiful thing. But it's not just the man Parker Palmer. It is those decades and decades of spiritual practice and listening that have made him who he is. It's the whole package, really. You just mentioned how he has taken some stumbling blocks in his life and he's been generative with them. And it strikes me that in your book, The Wild Land Within, you actually say this in a couple of different ways. You talk about taking obstacles and turning them into stepping stones. But what you just were saying a moment ago about teaching teachers how to see the child as a whole person, you do this within your book, The Wild Land Within as well. You're saying to the readers, listen, those parts of you that that holds you back, those parts of you that are traumatized, those parts of you that are hurting, those parts of you that are scared, they're not alien parts of you. They can be loved and integrated into your life as well as the parts that you are comfortable with and the parts that make you feel happy about yourself. I really felt as a reader that you were trying to encourage me to see myself as a whole person as well. And I want to say, first of all, as a reader, how much I appreciated that. But I want to ask you then about that process that you're trying to enact in the book of encouraging readers to be brave about the parts that they've shut away of their own selves. Well, that's so beautifully said, David. Right. With the book and and what I've learned is that we all have shadow sides or parts of our interior world and places of non-language even where the body holds pain and it isn't able to be released or healed through just speaking to someone about it. But this is part of the deep work that can happen. And as we, sometimes the spiritual practices open us up to these deeper levels of healing because they are somatic types of healing, not just in this conscious, rational part of our brain. Most of us are living out of wounding or triggering or those types of things that hold us back. 
they're not at the conscious level. They're not at the rational conscious level. We could have conversations about it. And that's why spiritual practices take us deeper into this language-less place. This wild land within is mostly language-less. And as you were saying about the parts of us that are I talk about predators and prey within the wild land and that we all have predators and we all have prey. We are all predators and we are all responding as prey. And that isn't something to rid ourselves of. We just don't want an infestation of one kind or the other. We want some harmony in this ecosystem within us, but that we don't have to be ashamed that we have these ferocious parts of us or that we have these parts of us that want to run away and flee at the sign of any kind of danger, any kind of threat, or we want to freeze and blend in. These are all ways to understand this interior world that really makes us who we are, really makes who we are in the world and with each other, but it often exists in a place without language. I think that some listeners may be struck by what you just said, and I want to lift it out and clarify it and ask for more on it, because what you just said, if I heard you correctly, is that a lot of this spiritual work is body work. It's somatic work. And I think that may surprise a lot of listeners, because we have this kind of narrative in our culture that says, you know, you're sort of in a corner in the dark with your legs crossed going om, om, and you're trying to ignore your body when you're doing spiritual things. But both in this conversation just now, but also very much in your book, The Wild Land Within, it's very clear that you see spirituality as a very different exercise. It's one that really involves the body. And I'd love to hear some more about that. Right. So, yeah, again, I, I don't think of spirituality as an adjective. I think of each human being as an organism that is a spiritual being. Our spiritual side and our physical side are one, just like our brain and our body are one. But we often think of ourselves as just brains that get walked around from room to room with our body or our legs. We don't think of ourselves as whole organisms. It's so much a default setting for us to think of ourselves as as separated. And so, yes, body work, um, things like feeling the sensations in your body, we are so used to numbing those out and turning them off that when you sometimes begin to do whether it's therapy work, whether it's spiritual practices or just settling down and being quiet, people get very surprised sometimes. Wow, I'm feeling a lot of backaches now. I'm getting headaches more. They're wondering if something's gone terribly wrong. And what's happening is places in the body that are offline language-wise are being activated because you're starting to do deeper work. You're starting to go to deeper places. And those places can involve pain at first, or they can involve feelings or emotions that have been long shut off. And as you get more attuned, they will come into sharper relief. And so the idea there, and that's again, why it's very important to have a spiritual companion so that you don't feel alone in this and that you don't feel unique in a way. This is a very human uh, feeling and a very human way of interacting with deeper portions of ourselves. But the body work is very important I draw a lot from Dr. Basil van der Kolk, who talks about the body keeps the score, and he deals with a lot of cases of trauma, and he's an expert in trauma. And really, people who've been traumatized are not comfortable in their own bodies. They sense dread deep, deep within. And I relate to that. That's my story. And so I knew that healing wasn't going to be about checking boxes off about Bible reading or prayer, going to services, it was going to have to involve a really deep interaction with the totality of myself. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Lisa Colon DeLay. She's a teacher, spiritual director, and host of the podcast Spark My Muse. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Well, carrying on with this, this idea of bodily recovery as part of spiritual practice, I was really struck by one particular example of that in your book, The Wild Land Within, where you talk about uh, a practitioner named Mary Merzowski, and there's this practice that she does called welcoming prayer. And I think if you could briefly tell my listeners about the example that you give of welcoming prayer, it's a very stark example, but it, it shows the kind of work that you're talking about and how extreme it can get sometimes, this kind of connection between the body and the spirit and trying to both integrate them, but also elevate them. Right. Maybe to speak about this, I can have people imagine for a moment, occasionally when you're in a situation that you you dread or you're hoping something doesn't happen. A lot of times it can have to do with power and control issues about what am I able to control or what do I think I can control? And our thoughts can get really hijacked with some of these planning maneuvers. So how we're going to keep things in control so we don't get afraid. What the welcoming prayer is about is welcoming reality as it is with an understanding that we are safe in God's love no matter what happens. And so this was developed um, by Mary Morawski in coordination with Thomas Keating as they studied together for a long time. And it involves allowing our bodies to really relax and to understand what's happening and to say, it's in a way, it's a way of saying everything's going to be okay and I'm welcoming this. Because if you really pay attention to your body in times of stress or, or trauma, you'll probably notice a collapsing or a squeezing types of sensations in your body, resistance, holding things back. Those are all very sensual part of our sensory world and part of our sensations as, a, as an organism. And what happens when we're relieved of that is we, we physically feel an expansion. We feel like it's easier to breathe. And what this spiritual practice does of welcoming prayer is just acknowledging what is and acknowledging that we are giving up our desire and our efforts to control what we can't control. We're giving up these futile efforts. But so often, I can speak for myself, I think my thinking about it and my worrying about it and my holding it really tightly will actually affect the outcome, when of course it won't. And you really begin by bringing into your attention what Mary calls the commotions of the body. That's any kind of sensations. She talks about bringing your mind into your heart, but it's really so you can notice the whole sensations of your body and just notice them and, and call them out by name. Noticing, whether you do this in your mind or maybe in a journal or something, you can just say, I'm noticing I have a tightness in the chest and I'm trying to resist this and I'm white knuckling it here. And you really just say welcome to all that is. So you might say, I welcome what is, and I let go of the desire for security, affection, and control, and I let go of my desire to change the situation. Now, for somebody who's never done that before, I don't know how you just whip out that prayer and <laughs> just do it. I find this can be an incredibly difficult prayer to pray, but it is starting to begin a new kind of posture that doesn't insist that we have a godlike control over our lives or even our thoughts sometimes. Situations will come up and we can just welcome them as they are and know that things are going to be okay. And why are they going to be okay? Because usually in the next moment or the next week, 
uh, we've forgotten about whatever care that is and life moves on. But in that moment, we will often grasp things very hard and very close and we won't welcome what actually is. Well, and it strikes me, as you're suggesting, that this is something that is almost like a graduate level kind of spirituality where you don't just jump into welcoming things like pain and welcoming mm-hmm. things like a lack of control. Mm-hmm. And it, it strikes mm-hmm. me as well that this is something that can come about and be aided by exactly the kind of vocation that you have been drawn to, which is spiritual companionship. Someone walking alongside of you saying, you can do this and it is possible and let's try it. And and if it works, let's rejoice. And if it doesn't work, let's figure out how to do it better. But I'm with you. Like those kinds of things are, that's the real value of someone being an accompaniment with you on this journey. Am Mm. I, am I, am I getting it or am I missing something here? No, you're getting it. I think it's exactly right. One of the things that humans need, just as social mammals, we need to know we're okay by essentially mirroring what we see in the outside world. Our mirror neurons do a lot to tell us how we feel about the world. And even they say talking into a mirror will help you feel less lonely. People who are very isolated, if they talk to themselves lovingly in a mirror, it works almost as well as having a conversation with another real person because our brains are so attuned to each other in these ways. In terms of welcoming reality as it is, that might not be so easy if you're in a traumatic situation or an abusive situation. It's not to say those situations should be welcomed and the pain should be welcomed. Go ahead, bring on more pain. I can take it. It really is just an acceptance, a core level acceptance of our vulnerability. Well, and this is something that I want to stress to listeners is that if they pick up your book, The Wild Land Within, this is not Pollyanna spirituality. You're not saying, hey, just imagine a better world and go and live in that castle in the air. You're taking account of the fact that some of our reality is very painful. Some of the things that people who are reading your book are experiencing are traumatic and are not easily fixed. What you gave to me as a reader was hope in the midst of that. And I wonder if as we're coming to the conclusion of our conversation, as you've been on this journey and you've shared a little bit about your own moments of trouble and trauma along this journey, what are some of the things that have kept you hopeful along the way? I'd say that the examples of people who have survived and thrived, even though the odds were not in their favor, when I think about the Black spirituals that come out of the American Black Church and community. These are stories and songs and testimonies and witnesses to what has been overcome, and there is still hope. I find that incredible, miraculous, really, and a testament to the power of God. And I think what keeps me going is that I know that other people, my ancestors and people who've gone before me, they have withstood incredible amounts of anguish and pain and carried on. And it is those connections to the people from either the past or people now who I find to be fantastic kind of wise elders. Dr. Loretta Coleman-Brown is somebody like that for me now. People I talk to who are well-versed in, I guess, being a non-anxious presence or well-versed in centering down Those people give me hope, and not because they're not looking at the bad or the dangerous or the hard parts of life, but they are solid and 
they have a great view of time, this long view of time that doesn't worry about the instantaneous moments of horror, but it looks at the long, broad view of time and humanity and how survival is a human trait. Adaptability is a human trait. And humans continue, even in the midst of horrendous suffering, they carry on. There's always some kind of remnant and there's always some kind of wisdom that community can teach us. That's why I found so rich some of these often marginalized stories of the poor in South America, where Gustavo Gutierrez is a priest, or the Black American church, who, or the Native Americans, who the government tried to exterminate them. And here they still are, and they aren't wallowing in, in depression that, that makes them want to end themselves. There is hope there, and, and you can see this coming out in the arts, in the culture, in the music, and in their willingness to continue to interact and continue to fight for their lives. Well, Lisa Colon-Delay, I'm aware that you heard a call, a vocation, and you responded to that call by learning how to be a spiritual companion. And then you heard a bigger call to interact with some of your heroes and to gather those conversations and to share them with others through your podcast, Spark My Muse. And now you've heard yet another call to gather a whole capacious amount of stories from the Eastern and Western church through centuries and millennia and to offer them now to readers. And in every single one of those moments, I see you gathering in wisdom and then turning around and saying, here it is. And I'm so grateful. I'm so inspired by that. I'm so thankful that you took the time to do that in these many different ways. And I'm really thankful that you, you took the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Lisa colon She's a teacher, spiritual director, and host of the Spark My Muse podcast. That podcast has featured guests including Krista Tippett, Father James Martin, Parker J. Palmer, and many more. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, The Wild Land Within, Cultivating Wholeness Through Spiritual Practice. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.